I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Janice Dean. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, March 23rd, 2020. I'm Jackie Heinrich. A growing number of patients testing positive across the United States. New York, a major hotspot for coronavirus. Dr. Nicole Sapphire tells us her concern is for doctors and nurses. I love seeing the private sector um, increase right now, but I'm very concerned for healthcare professionals. I'll be honest. I'm Chris Foster. There's a new Fox Nation series about crimes that become bigger than their victims, like the murder of Polly Class. She was having a slumber party in her house. Her mom was sleeping in the next bed. The, the parents did everything right. And that's what rocked the nation, is that a little girl who was having a slumber party with her friends in her bedroom was plucked out of her bedroom. And I'm Rachel Campos Duffy. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Healthcare systems across the country are on the brink of buckling as coronavirus cases continue to soar. In New York, the epicenter for U.S. cases, the Army Corps of Engineers identifying sites like convention centers and colleges to set up field hospitals as hospitals cry out in dire need of beds, masks, and ventilators. Under the strain, the Centers for Disease Control now encouraging doctors and nurses to reuse masks or make homemade masks from bandanas and scarves as a last resort, although protection against pathogens like coronavirus is unknown. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said the state is trying to respond, but price gouging is a major obstacle. He called on the federal government to step in. I'll contract with a company for 1,000 masks. They'll call back 20 minutes later and say the price just went up because they had a better offer. We even have hospitals competing against other hospitals. If the federal government came in, used the Defense Production Act, you could resolve all of that immediately. The White House is cutting red tape for vaccine production and calling on American companies to shift production to help. Companies like General Motors and Haynes pledged to step up, but the timeline is uncertain. White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro spoke with Fox's Maria Bartiromo about where things stand. Our job here is to not only get the production done, but to get it to the people in need. We got planes in the air. We got FEMA planes, FedEx planes. We got Pentagon planes. And that's what I'm focused on. And the American people should be comforted because the full power, the full power, Maria, American production is coming to bear on this, just like in World War II. The challenge is time and how little is left to mobilize health care resources, ramp up production, limit exposure in communities, and flatten the curve before hospitals get overwhelmed. Former CDC Director Tom Frieden on Fox News Sunday. For the next 10 to 14 days, we're likely to continue to see a big increase in cases in places like New York City. That's why we're so worried about health care becoming overwhelmed and keeping our health care workers as safe as possible. And though Congress is working on a massive stimulus package to blunt the crippling economic effects of the virus, America could be at a standstill for some time. But experts say without this kind of action, the outcome could be worse. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is a board-certified medical doctor and senior Fox News medical contributor. Well, Jackie, let me tell you, when you look at what happened in China, what's happening in Italy, and even in the United States, anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of the people hospitalized are actually healthcare workers. And that is largely due to the fact that they didn't have appropriate protection when they were seeing patients who are symptomatic. And that is concerning because at the end of the day, if our doctors and our nurses and our technologists are all sick, who's going to care for us? So, yes, when I hear the CDC saying reuse your mask or even put a bandana over your face, but I happen to know that 
all of our academic literature tells us that these measures don't work at preventing illness, of course I'm concerned. But at dire times call for dire measures. And if we don't have masks, then yes, putting a bandana over your face is better than nothing. But no, it is not nearly as good as if I had an, a, a single-use mask as we would expect to have any other time. You know, this just brings up a good point. Should we have more PPE available at any time? And the answer is, well, I don't know, because we don't necessarily want all of these going to waste. We don't want to ramp up production of them during a normal time and then not have them available. I do love what I'm seeing right now. While we have the private sector, I believe it is Haynes and amongst others that they're, they're putting together um, some sort of devices or whatever they're trying to do to make masks. And, you know, the truth is, I mean, if you think of Hanes, you think of how many stitches are in their underwears or their shirts and the more stitching and the more layers that you put over your face, then yes, the better that is going to be to protect you. So I love seeing the private sector um, increase right now, but I'm very concerned for healthcare professionals. I'll be honest, you know, watching I don't want to get political here, but I'm watching the bills go back and forth between the House and the Senate. And I keep seeing little things that keep trying to be stuck into these bills. And some of that is decreased reimbursement for our hospital systems and our doctors. And it just goes to show the lack of respect for what these frontline people are doing every day. I even have some private messages that I'm getting from colleagues across the country showing that the hospitals are saying that they're going to slash um, physician compensation it to about half over the for the next four to six weeks in an effort to save costs. And but yet they're saying wow. to them, but you still have to care for patients. And by the way, we're not going to give you masks to care for these patients. I mean, it, it is it is honestly, it's quite upsetting. And, you know, the, the surge that we're seeing in New York City, of course, the concern is that we're going to see similar conditions come to other parts of the country as, you know, more tests come out, more people become infected as is projected. Um, I saw that Give Me PPE was trending at hashtag on Twitter among healthcare workers um, because of that concern and some really haunting images coming in from across the country that showed um, brown paper bags in ICUs with uh, doctors' names and nurses' names written on them. Masks were in those bags that they were told to reuse, uh, that they would ordinarily toss after every interaction in a patient isolation room. Um, and then, you know, we've been talking about New York a lot because this is where the majority of the cases are, but Governor Cuomo in New York today called on the federal government to nationalize the purchasing of medical supplies because what he said the state is seeing as they're trying to buy more masks for these medical workers is that masks that used to be 85 cents are now $7 a mask because he's competing with other states and in some cases other countries to try to buy up that PPE to protect the healthcare workers. Um, what's your opinion on what the federal government needs to do in order to prevent this price gouging, um, even given the fact that, you know, production is ramping up, but the state's and the hospitals, private hospitals, still have to buy it. Right. I mean, absolutely. And we heard President Trump, I believe he, he addressed this saying that if you are experiencing, meaning the state or the hospital system or anyone is experiencing that they're in a bidding war with either the federal government or just another hospital system, that they need to let them know so they can stop that. But the truth is, you can't just call the White House quickly and say, hey, these guys aren't being fair. 
So, it, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of intricacies when it comes to um, purchase pricing, and it, it does have a lot of negotiating to do with it. And so I, I truly just think that the companies need to take the initiative and say, we're not going to do bidding wars right now. We're going to have these masks available. First come, first serve. Whoever wants to purchase them, that's fine. Um, but as Cuomo mentioned, right now the hot spots are New York, New Jersey, and Washington State. The other places in the United States, they're going to have increased cases too. So right now the supply should be directed to those places, to New York and New Jersey and Washington, where we need them the most. But we also have to remember that just like with toilet paper, if you start hoarding everything and you start buying everything up, then the places that are going to have increased cases, say next week, are going to be out of mass. So. Um, I think it is, I don't necessarily know if it's a federal responsibility. I think it is more the individual hospital systems, the individual states to take on making sure that there is enough for their workers. Mm -hmm. What's your knowledge of these drugs that are being considered? Um, I know there's some anecdotal evidence that they there's some sort of efficacy with a combination of drugs, um, but there has been sort of limited testing and that's getting underway right now. Tell me a little bit about the drugs that are be con being considered to help people get better who are suffering from this. So there are medications um, and treatments being considered kind of all over the place. And let's just kind of break it down. One, we know we have a vaccine in the works. Record time, we had um, the genetic sequencing released and a vaccine was made and it was even injected into its first human last week. Again, this is all record time, but the vaccine itself needs to undergo extremely um, arduous health and safety testing to make sure that it's not only effective, but that it's safe. So the vaccine, it's in the works, but this is not going to be our saving grace right now. We are just hoping that it's going to be available by early 2021. So when we see the next peak of this virus, that we have the vaccine. So that aside, then we talk about remdesivir, which we've heard about from the get-go, which is an antiviral medication that was trialed in SARS as well. Um, it is not FDA approved. It is a new medication. So it also has to undergo the arduous um, trialing to make sure that it is not only not only that it works on COVID-19, but that it is safe to give to people. Now, this has been undergoing clinical trials now for over a month in Nebraska, in Chicago, I believe, and other places across the world. And it is showing some benefit. Um, and so they've been using it as a compassionate use or the right to try through the right to try legislation as well. Um, but then what we've heard this week, which has caused some controversy a little bit, President Trump and some of the others have mentioned hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine used in combination with azithromycin. So some people in France combine the two medications, the chloroquine and the azithromycin, and they showed when they gave this combination to those that were severely sick, they had symptoms turning around in under 24 hours. That's pretty incredible. Now we do have to say, this is all anecdotal, very premature data. This is not a robust peer-reviewed trial. There are gonna be severe limitations and biases likely in this. However, it is important to see that there has been some headway and some 
trial and error showing that there are benefits in some ways to potentially treat the severe illness. It's just important to keep in mind these short-term success stories may not actually equate to a long-term solution. Mm -hmm. I think it's at least cause for hope for people in a time where things feel somewhat hopeless and very scary. My last question for you would be, um, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said that things are going to be worse in April than they were in March, that May could be worse than April. We've heard time and time again that things are going to get worse before they get better. What do you say to a small business owner whose restaurant or bar or whatever it is they're running has been shut down because of this and their livelihood is really in danger? I mean, let me tell you, I'm very concerned about the long-term economic consequences of what is going on right now. Um, And truthfully, I think some of these consequences will far outlast that of the virus itself. However, the truth is, and I have been saying, if we hunker down right now and people really follow the recommendations for the next 14 days, 15 days, that the this this disruption of life will be significantly less than if we drag this out. Um, I I keep seeing some innovation of people trying to stay open. I think one of my favorite local restaurants is doing curbside cocktail mixture pickups. I mean, it sounds like a great idea. But the bottom line is there are a lot of people that that depend on these paychecks. And we want to do anything we can to keep people on the payroll, even through times like this. And so whether it is utilizing the federal funds that are becoming available or getting creative to continue offering um, services, just know that this is temporary. This is not like the time of the Great Depression where we were just in a period of secular stagnation and um, overall low morale. We started out this pandemic with one of the strongest economies we've ever had, the lowest unemployment rates. This is a period of a temporary halt. This is a tangible threat, a virus that we will overcome as a community, as a society. So stay strong, do whatever you can to keep yourself and the people that depend on you afloat and just know that we will be on the other side of this very soon. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, it is an emotional time. It's a complicated time. And, you know, it's important to have your expertise and your insight to bring some sense of normalcy or understanding to what's happening here. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicole Sapphire. Thank you. This is Rachel Campos Duffy with your Fox News commentary coming up. A lot of us are stuck at home these days looking for something to stream. There's a new true crime series on Fox Nation called Crimes That Changed America, like the Son of Sam murders committed by David Berkowitz in the 70s. Retired Yonkers New York detective Kevin Murphy. He loved the attention to this day. I mean, he's sitting in, in there almost 40 years later, and uh, he's, uh, he, he's enjoying this. The episodes are hosted by Emily Campagno. She says that love of attention helped lead to the Son of Sam law in New York. That was particularly interesting because it actually was a prophylactic law, meaning that it was fear that the David Berkowitz, who was the murderer behind the Son of Sam killing spree in New York City in the 70s, that he would capitalize on those killings and, and in the words of the show, get a hefty paycheck. And so 
it, to preemptive to preempt that that's why the laws were passed and most of the other crimes that we cover all of them really it's retroactively right something heinous happens and then you pass a law to ensure it never happens again this was different in that it prevented it and there have been different iterations throughout the years and as it stands now essentially if you are if a cr- criminal is set to make ten thousand dollars or more then they have to notify the family and the authorities but they can still do it if if um if some violent felon decided to sell their story, O.J. Simpson decided to, to sell his story. Well, I guess I, he may not, not have been convicted of the robberies yet, but you know what I'm saying. If, uh, if if David Berkowitz today wanted to sell a book, is he allowed to or does he just have to notify the family? He is allowed to, but the it just triggers certain laws that come into effect with the proceeds and where the profit comes into play. Um, and when you brought up O.J., it's interesting because that's what kind of sparked a larger conversation. So as often happens, laws are passed and then after they're passed, there are conversations about, oh, this is too overbroad. So look, we have to tailor this and narrow it down a little bit more. And I guess the disclosure to the families also opens up that money to uh, civil suits. Yes. And um, I think, you know, the, the purpose of it is that it's to go into victim compensation funds. So we have in this country, the government holds uh, those accounts. And so it triggers those as well. Uh, you, you did the Rebecca Schaefer case from when did she die? The 80s? early 90s. That's really interesting. You know, just I was talking about it this morning. um, And one of the stage managers was like, yeah, you know, I was her age. I remember that vividly because it it rocked the nation. um, It was a big deal. Totally. And it, it should have been. And that's why we, we covered in that way, too. You know, this was a, a girl who had just started to kind of get to the cusp of her fame. She became a household name. She was a, a model and an she was actress. She on TV in the 80s, I guess, is what I was... Yes. Talk about her case. She was on My Sister Sam. She was a rising star. So a rising celebrity and a crazed fan was able to, through a a private investigation service, he he paid them $250. And at that time, you could buy from the DMV someone's address. So he was from Arizona. He got this private eye to, to, they just, you know, wrote the DMV a check, got her private information, and he showed up on her doorstep. And she was waiting that morning for the script of Godfather Part 3. She was reading for that movie. So she answered the door because she was expecting the script. She found this guy standing there. You know, she turned him away. He comes back with a gun, and he shoots her on her doorstep dead. So what changed there? The first anti-stalking laws in the country, it started in California, were passed, swept across the country. And, you know, as we talked about a moment ago, laws have their paths and, um, you know, kind of evolutions as well. So they weren't strong enough in the beginning. And there was a whole movement after that, which I go through interviews in the show of um, who kind of spearheaded those movements and why, as to really ensure those laws have teeth. And the takeaway from it is really that those it did away with being able to purchase the information from the DMV, but the, that info is still accessible to this day now that we have the internet. Yeah, I was going to say, you can go online and pay a few bucks and get somebody's address. Yep, 100%. Most of us know what Megan's Law is. A little girl named Megan Kanka was killed uh, in 1994. Talk about the law, talk about the case. That was such a troubling case. These these all are, frankly. Uh, that was a seven-year-old girl who in a nearby neighborhood to here, actually, in New Jersey, um, she was just out riding her bike. And at that time, registered sex offenders, uh, there was no communication between them kind of being let out and moving someplace. So there were three registered sex offenders that lived together in a house. 
across the street from Megan Kinka and her siblings. And one of them lured her inside uh, by saying, you know, I want to, let's show you a puppy and um, brutally, uh, brutally raped and, and murdered her. And within 24 hours, he had led cops to her body, which was um, in a nearby park. But the senselessness of it and the prevention aspect of it, you know, neighbors were like, how is it possible that these guys were living here and we weren't told about it? So Megan's law was ensuring that the authorities had to notify communities when registered sex offenders lived any place. And that quickly uh, was ratified into the then national um, victims, uh, basically a federal analog and all states have an equivalent. Megan's law was passed in Jersey or was it a federal law? Jersey. And then it became, there was a federal analog. And now you can go online with your address and get little blips of where registered sex offenders are around you. You can. And, you know, there are arguments that the registry is overbroad, but that's that's really eclipsed by the level of detail that's in the registry. You can see what people are on there for. And I think, frankly, that those arguments have become quite stale in terms of the, oh, it's the 18-year-old who was dating his 17-year-old girlfriend. Like, it really now is an accurate telling of what these crimes are and, and who these people are yeah. and where. The issue now is management of the registry. There are 100,000 absconded sex offenders as we talk. So uh, if we could have kind of an increased amount of resources through them, then I think this would be even more effective than it is now. Another episode is about the murder of Polly Class. She was kidnapped from her home in Petaluma, California in 1993 and then strangled by Richard Allen Davis. He was arrested two months later and told police where to find the girl's body. She was having a slumber party in her house. Her mom was sleeping in the next bed. The the parents did everything right. And that's what rocked the nation is that a little girl who was having a slumber party with her friends in her bedroom was plucked out of her bedroom by a recidivist sex offender. Um, And he, he was frankly a sadist. Like he, he, um, you know, these guys are like absolutely uh, excruciating to sort of read details about their history and their crimes. Um, he abducted her from her bedroom and uh, then raped and murdered her. 60 days later, her body was found. He'd led authorities to her body as well. And what was so painful about that case, you know, besides the obvious, is that that night, um, the he basically, while he had Polly, sort of got his car stuck in a ditch on a neighboring property. But because at that time, APB bulletins didn't go out on the same channels 911 wasn't centralized. So everyone on a certain channel was looking for this kidnapper. Everyone was looking for this little girl, but it, they not all law enforcement knew. So, you know, picture two sheriffs who had this right. guy in their custody and they didn't know to look for him. So they let him go. And then uh, he was ultimately through, um, through a, a palm print on her bed. Uh, they he, were able to identify him. And that case, so in addition to the centralized 911 dispatch system, it also led to the three strikes law in California and has frankly become the global um, case study for FBI kidnapping deployment. This one I don't know about. Tell me about the Jay and Tanya case. That's fascinating. That's That was a cold case. So about 35 years ago, um, th- that couple was from Vancouver Island in um Canada. And they had gone on an overnight 24-hour road trip to Seattle to get a a part for the um, family business, essentially, and brutally murdered. And their bodies were found 60 miles apart. And DNA was collected at uh, both scenes of crimes and, you know, their van and everything. And then it went cold. And because of genetic genealogy, 
uh, and the remember the um, Green River Killer mm-hmm. and the like that level of technology in that uh, labs. Then finally, there was an identification made. And what's striking about this case, though, is that this is the first murder conviction and trial from the use of genetic genealogy. So we saw it play out in the courts just last year. It's on appeal. So there's a, a DNA, you know, complete match to a guy who lived seven miles away from where one of the bodies was recovered. Um, and they get material from one of the crime scenes or both the crime scenes. And they, and they got it. And how do they find this guy from one of those from uh, the genealogy websites. Exactly. So, you know, picture it sitting on a shelf for 35 years. And because of the dogged work of that sheriff, uh, that county um, and the sheriff's work, then essentially when the DNA technology was able to catch up, then they uh, submitted the DNA that they had for it. And there was a match. And because of a genetic genealogist that I interview in one of the interviews that I have in the episode, um, she explains exactly how it happened. And she created the, she reconstructed the family tree. So this is, um, it's basically like other members of his family had their DNA in the database. Mm -hmm. So she reconstructed an entire family tree and was able to through then like court records and whatnot say, okay, like, is there a, there is a male here, this generation, et cetera, et cetera, narrowed it down and was Richard... Talbot the third. So you can get caught without submitting yourself as, as long as a few family members uh, upload their DNA. Correct. There are multiple ways that DNA can identify you. One of them is if your family members have submitted their DNA to a certain database. That is genetic genealogy. And those are subpoenaed. How do they, how are, how is law enforcement getting to 23andMe? Well, now, uh, now it's a little bit harder than it used to be. The particular database that was used for this case, everyone on there consented to have their DNA used for law enforcement purposes. Now you have to be explicit and say, yes, I consent. And unfortunately, I, I say unfortunately because I believe strongly in the use of it for cold case solvings and for law enforcement, but for those that advocate uh, – not that I don't advocate for privacy, but for those that are really strong about it, they think that the opt-out – so you know, now it's now that. it's opt out, not opt in, depending on how you put it. You have to say yeah. you have to you have to actively say I'm cool with this. Exactly. You can check it out on Fox Nation, Emily Campagno. It's called Crimes That Changed America. Emily, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. I'm grateful. If you are enjoying the Fox News Rundown, you can listen every day by going to foxnewspodcasts.com and subscribing. There you'll also find exclusive podcasts hosted by some of your favorite Fox News personalities, including Dana Perino, Brett Baer, Martha McCallum, and Greg Gutfeld. Head over to foxnewspodcasts.com to listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Rachel Campbell's Duffy. What's on your mind? When President Trump announced that we should limit gatherings to 10 people to help slow the spread of the coronavirus, things got real for America's families. As a family of 11, we couldn't help but chuckle wondering who among us should go. In addition to managing the meals, cleanup, homework, and cabin fever, many parents are having to learn to work from home for the very first time. And there's no question that it can all be very stressful. So 
So here are a few tips to help manage the quarantine challenges and make the most of this unexpected family time. First, demystify coronavirus. If you haven't already, have a family talk. It can be scary for kids who are hearing stories from friends in social media or the news. Answer all their questions and empower them with information on what they can do to keep germs at bay. I told my kids that being clean is their patriotic duty. Tip number two is just soak in the family time. As long as you're stuck inside together, enjoy each other, cook and bake together, play cards, dance, watch movies, bring out old family albums and home movies. You know, most of us complain all the time about never having enough family time. Well, now we do. So make the most of it and don't feel bad about enjoying this precious time together. Number three, and this is probably the hardest one, is set a schedule. Try to set at least a rough schedule for homework, meals, and bedtimes. Again, you don't have to be rigid, but setting a goal, for example, of getting schoolwork done before noon will leave plenty of time for fun and downtime after. Work out. I know it's hard to do when everyone's home, but you need to make time to work out and shower, even if it's just for 20 minutes. It will make mom and dad feel better. I'm always in a better mood after a workout and a shower. Working from home, if you don't have a home office, designate a room or a place in the house to do your work. Make your workspace as pleasant and work-friendly as possible. Trade off with your partner for conference calls and quiet time to return emails. If you're the only parent home, ask or if you have to pay an older sibling to watch the other kids while you work. Of course, when all else fails, a movie will keep them quiet for a chunk of time. Again, no guilt. You gotta do what you gotta do. Next tip, pray together. Pray as a family for those who are sick, for those who are working in grocery stores and making sure we all get our food, for our healthcare workers, for the scientists who are working on cures, for lonely grandparents in nursing homes, and wisdom for our president and our leaders. Focusing on others and counting our blessings is another way to help our kids realize that things are going to be okay. And for those busy families who haven't made a routine or a tradition of family prayer time at the beginning or end of the day, look, there is no better time to start than now. Finally, think about how you can help the most vulnerable among us, our elderly. Can you help them pick up groceries? Give a call to cheer them up. Maybe write letters with your kids to a nursing home. Find other ways to help while observing social distancing, of course. We're all in this together. This is Rachel Campos Duffy. You have been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to Fox News Radio's hourly newscast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, visit foxnews.com. Download and subscribe to original podcast from Fox News Radio. It's time to get caught up on what's happened and what's next. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcast.com. 
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.